You're listening to the Winter Hughes Podcast with Joe and Eric Hughes. And now, here's the Hughes Brothers. Welcome into a new Winter Hughes Podcast. Sorry for the delay getting this up. I had to have an emergency root canal, which was still less painful than some of the things we've seen from the A's this season. The A's are losing better, which is a good thing as we're getting ready to close the season up. We're seeing this team play consistently more competitive baseball. However, it is still going to go down as one of the worst seasons in A's history and in Oakland history. The team now has 100 losses on the season, back-to-back years with 100 losses, something they have never done during their time in Oakland. You have to go all the way back to the team's time in Kansas City, the last time that an A's team lost games, uh, lost 100 or more games in back-to-back seasons. So, Rick, how do you kind of marry those two things as we're getting into this kind of home stretch of baseball with how bad the season is overall versus what we're seeing down the stretch and trying to marry those two things together? Kind of puts the season in a perspective, especially when you mentioned that back-to-back 100 lost seasons. But one of the things that I think the A's fans can take away is that They're kind of ending on a high, right? We're seeing a lot of really good baseball late in the year, which is something all baseball teams want to see, especially if you're heading to the playoffs. That's when you need to be playing your best baseball. For a team that we really don't have a lot to play for, um, and it seems like other teams are, are looking at us like we don't have a lot to play for either, The last few games here, the A's have shown some of those teams, the Rangers, the Astros, teams that do have something to play for that, hey, this team's still going to put up a fight. So as a fan, that is something that I am excited to see that they're still fighting. And so it it is a a season that is pretty much done and dusted. It's just how bad is it going to get? But to see that we have some solid pieces for what's going forward for next year, And that's kind of what I think a lot of A's fans expected for this season. I think it, you know, would be absolutely if this season was reversed, right? Like if we started with like Geloff and Soderstrom and then by the end of it, we have Aledmus Diaz and Jace Peterson. And so that that would be, you know, tragic. But this is, I think, what A's fans uh, hope to see. And I think we are seeing that. And to see them clicking now and to play good baseball against teams that are fighting for the playoffs, you can't help but be hopeful for what next season could bring. It's really all you kind of have left if you're a bad team is A, the development, which the A's are doing with these young guys that we're getting a chance to see, the Zach Geloffs of the world, Lawrence Butler, even guys like Shea Langoliers and, you know, Estuary Ruiz and Ryan Noda, guys who feel like they've been here longer, but they're still rookies or in their first full season. And I think the other thing is you play spoiler, right? You match up against those teams that are going to go to the playoffs to see how you're doing. It'd be one thing if the A's were playing better baseball against the Kansas City Royals or White Sox, but you're right. It it does hit a little different when you go into Seattle and have a chance to win a series there. One batting of relief pitching cost the A's a chance to win a series against a potential playoff team in the Mariners. You know, they they mixed and matched against the Rangers, and they were in a lot of those games, even ones that they lost. And now you roll into Houston, and you face two guys in Framber Valdez and Justin Verlander, who have been the boogeyman as far as A's hitting has been concerned over the last few years, and you dominate. You look like the better team for two out of the three games. And fortunately, in that third game, after the A's had two of their best wins of the season, 
you didn't get no hit. You, you not only that, you didn't get shut no, out. And and that was gonna, you know, definitely put the season back into perspective, right? If there were two no hitters in one season, um, credit to the A's, which just goes back to what we were saying was they didn't give up. They didn't say, well, this is it. We're just gonna hang our tails between our legs and we'll come out tomorrow. And when it was really starting to look like they were facing the second no hitter of the year, they turned around and got two runs. You know, so credit to yeah. them. They're they're showing fight. And that's fight that I just don't think the team that was on the field earlier this season had in them. I was trying to figure out exactly what is the the split point for how you measure those two teams. Because you have the team that started 12 and 50. Just how horrifying that thought is. Where's the team that's playing well down the stretch? I mean, we've got a chance to close out the last month of the season with a winning record. The A's are 12 and 10 over their last 22 games. And that's a positive, like you mentioned, building on something, especially a team that started 12 and 50. I was thinking about kind of splitting it up as like, instead of AD and BC as like uh, AG and BG is like before Geloff and after Geloff kind of thing. But I didn't know if that gave him too much credit because it is such a youth movement that they lead into You know, but it is a team sport, so I don't think it does just give him all the credit, but it does show the spark that he provided. And uh, I I don't want to take away from what he's done individually because that that has just been mind-blowing. And, you know, I, I think I saw before the last game against the Astros, he was still close to that 270 mark. So, you know, he's still showing a, a lot of consistency for average. I am seeing a, a few more 0 for 2s, 0 for 3s when he's coming into the at-bats. But that's what absolutely what you would expect to see. But it, his individual performance, it, it sometimes carries the team. But you've also seen the spark that it's provided. And and one of the things that we've seen is a Ledmus Diaz getting a spark that, that has shown him play to, uh, I think, the level that everyone was probably expecting him to play, I'm sure himself included. So I, I think that the BG, AG, sorry, whatever you want to call it, I got mixed up. No, I, I think that's a, appropriate because that's where we definitely saw a shift to the younger guys and we saw the spark that the, the younger guys were able to deliver for the team. You know, it's just a level of consistency that he brings. Like, is it's baseball. Even the best guys in the world are going to have those over two nights and over three and over four nights, but he doesn't last in them for a week or two weeks. You know, it's going to be a game or two. You make an adjustment and he's back on track. The other thing I've been really impressed with the defense, you know, part of Zach Geloff's journey was trying to figure out, was he going to be a third baseman? Was he going to be a shortstop? Was he going to wind up where he looks like he's settling in at second base? Because he's pretty big for a second baseman. I mean, you think about the history of a second baseman, whether it was, you know, Frank Medicino or Mark Ellis, not exactly the biggest dudes in the world, but Zach Eloff is a pretty big dude. And the way that he has settled in, I feel like I'm seeing a lot more double plays turned with Nick Allen and Zach Eloff. And just the way the ball is getting around when there is a chance for a double play is so much smoother than it was earlier in the season, which is a big deal when you consider that, hey, they have put in things to stop the shift and they've made the bases bigger. So those bang, bang plays, like when you're trying to turn a double play, it's got to be quick. And I really feel like that's another thing that Zach Geloff has helped some of the A's players kind of settle into because that really helps the pitching. When you can erase something with a double play, it makes a huge difference for those young guys like 
Ken Waldachuk, who really looks like he's coming into his own down the stretch. Oh, w- without a doubt. And it, it's hard to uh, continue the la- the last point when you bring up Waldachuk because that just right away brought up what an incredible outing he just had where he went uh, six innings and no hits. But one of the things I just wanted to add to that that piece and those double plays is the work that Ryan Nota is doing over at first base. And I think it's something that Ace fans probably took a little advantage of seeing Matt Olson there at first base for so long. When you have a gold glove first baseman over there, you expect to see some of those plays made. And you really see the difficulty when you see a guy that's getting moved there or uh, he's not used to there or he's playing there every other day. And you saw with the Phillies when they put Bryce Harper over there and just he is a, a great baseball player. And it's just a whole nother mitt that you're dealing with. So there's a whole yeah. different aspect to it. And I, I know A's fans love that money ball piece with uh, Adberg and, oh, tell them we're on. It's just the, the same thing now. It's incredibly, it's yeah. incredibly different. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I just want to give Ryan Nota some credit to that as well, because he, I think, is a, a big piece to that double play and puzzle and, and for the, the team as well. And then Waldachuk, wow, he has just like, he and Sears, you know, I, I think we kind of talked earlier in the podcast that, you know, I don't really see those guys as like the two, three guys on the on a big three. But if you can have those guys as four or five, and they're still young, and they're still developing, and this was a development season for them too. But if they keep developing like they've been doing, and and you see the stuff and the potential that they have, and and Waldachuk, really dominant performance to show that it's there. Sears has had a lot of consistency, you know, some learning curves with uh, how, how, how much he's been pitching this year. But if those guys can keep developing, not only would you be really proud and happy to have them as your four or five guys, they could definitely challenge to be your two, three guys. Waldachuk has had an interesting journey because he came over. He was a highly touted prospect that the A's got in the Frankie Montas deal. He was an MLB pipeline top 100 prospect. So the A's were really high on him. And he showed a lot of promise at the end of last season. He had that big start against the Angels when he went seven innings in the final start of the season last year. And that really made a lot of people within the A's organization feel confident that he was ready to be, you know, a part of this rotation going forward. And then he started the season, like many of the A's starting pitchers, disastrous. In his first half of the season, he had like a 6.63 ERA, got bumped out of the rotation. And the A's did something interesting. Rather than send him back down to AAA and say, figure it out down there, they moved him into a bullpen role. And they're like, you're going to get, you know, three, four innings. And we want you to work on really dialing in your changeup and being able to throw it whenever you want to, as opposed to whatever the scouting report says. Your pitches dictate it, not what the scouting report says. And over time, the A's started going from two to three innings to three to four innings, and then five innings. He's made some starts. They're using him the opener a lot. And you're talking about his last start in that game against the Astros. Talk about hope. Mason Miller started that game as the opener. We already know he's on a limited pitch count. You follow him up with Ken Waldachuk, two of the A's best pitching prospects, going into Houston, a place where you can hit a pop fly for a home run out into those Crawford boxes. And they went eight innings of one hit shove it ball that against one of the hottest teams in baseball. It was absolutely one of the more impressive wins that the A's have had this season. I think you got to give some credit there to the coaches. Uh, Just everything that you just said was something I I heard Ramon Hernandez say pretty much word for word on the game cast. And that was that 
That's where I steal it from. Yeah, I listen to Ramon and I steal from, everything. I steal it from the guy that knows, right? <laughs> steal from the best, so, you know? <laughs> no, he, he was just saying, like, you know, so much data is out there in the scouting reports. And it's, you know, you got to be able to read through that and to still have that feel of the game. So, like you're saying, like, no, the scouting report says this, but you got to have that feel that 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 change up is under control and it doesn't matter if he's looking for it or not you have the command of it that that you're going to sit him down right here so credit for that and I, I think the coaches are doing a pretty good job developing these players cuz that's that's something we need i want to know what your thoughts are because i i really believe that there are different kinds of coaches and there are coaches that are really good developmental coaches then there's your championship caliber coaches, right? Like Bob Melvin, I think people were really interested to see him go from like a, a young A's team where he's able to help develop players, then to go into a star-studded Padres lineup where sometimes your job is to manage egos. And so there are some different skill sets there, different personalities fit the job. What do you think of this current coaching staff? And I, I do think that they're in a developmental phase. And do you think that this is the appropriate staff to move forward? Do you think they have what it takes to go beyond development into implementation into hopefully championship? The initial reviews are kind of a little bit mixed, but they're coming around because at the end of the year, we have seen Ken Waldachuk look like he's turned that corner and look like next year he is ready to be the guy that these were hoping for this year. I think another guy that I look at is Shea Langoliers, a guy that really coming on in the final month, and he had a lot on his plate this year. We've talked about this in other podcasts where the A's have already used a record number of pitchers. So his first full season as a full-time catcher, he's got to learn a record number of pitchers. Most of them he didn't spend any time in the minor leagues with, and he's got to figure out new rules that require holding runners on. Well, you also have to figure out big league pitching on your own. So the thing that suffered the most was his hitting. And we saw, we've talked about it, the ability to control the run game has been a huge strength for him this year, where he's one of the elite players in baseball at throwing out attempted runners above average. And now we're seeing that power potential kind of reemerge in that final month of the season. Coming into this podcast, I think he's got 18 homers, and he's got a chance to be the first A's catcher since Ramon Hernandez, you know, 20 years ago to have 20 homers in a season, which is something that you, you're really counting on for a guy like Shea Langoliers. He just looks more comfortable. You look at some of those players and how they develop through the year, and that gives me a lot of encouragement with the guys that are on Mark Kotze's coaching staff right now. How they handle guys like Lawrence Butler and Tyler Soderstrom struggling right now, you know, that'll be another part of the puzzle. But overall, I mean, I'm feeling really encouraged that the A's are playing their best baseball after a really long, miserable season, it's looking like things are coming together. So my question is, let's say this team shows that they're made out of the maybe the same stuff of the 2012 team and that they... The right stuff. That the, the good stuff, right? And that they come out next year and they are number one in the wild card. Miller is just having an incredible season. We get some solid seasons from some other players there. Have you seen enough from Kotze that you would feel comfortable that he's the guy making the right decisions and the right pitching changes at the right times that you think he's the coach that could get them there? 
I do. I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, I'm not going to go on and say that he's had a perfect season by any stretch of the imagination. I, I think that that's, you know, fair to say about any manager, whether it's Kotze or whether it's, you know, pick a guy from that's been doing this for a long time. There's always things you can kind of point out where you didn't quite like that. But overall, I think Kotze, when you see the way that he gets a guy into a role, he's got a plan for how he wants to use guys. And for a while, it was, you know, all right, I'm going to try to get my starter out there. If I get into trouble, I'm going to get Lucas Ursig in there to kind of get us out of trouble. And then Ursig hit a little bit of a wall and he had to kind of readjust. And so you saw a guy like Sean Newcomb get an opportunity to take that role. He's found different ways rather than just kind of keep running into this wall over and over and over again. I, I give him a lot of credit for being willing to try a lot of things and stick with what works and be able to move on quickly. You even think back, it seems like a long time ago, but remember the plan to start this year was that Jesus Aguilar and Ryan Noda were going to split time at first base. And Ryan Noda made it very clear that he was going to be the guy. And the A's didn't just wait around and be like, hey, you know what, Jesus, we paid you a few million bucks and we like you around here. They just made that move and they moved on, said, Noda, you're our guy. So I, I do like that. I, I do get frustrated with times like I personally would like to see Estuary Ruiz in some more of these games, but I get where Katsi's looking at it and be like, well, we're going to give Lawrence Butler a shot to show what he can do for a prolonged stretch. And then two of my best guys are Seth Brown and Tony Kemp. And I'm not going to have second base available for Tony Kemp because I've got Zach Geloff right now, which kind of limits your ability to get Ruiz in there as much as maybe somebody like me would like. I've liked the the job that Kotze's done. And I think sometimes, you know, you, you got to remember he's working with what he has. I'm not right, really yeah. expecting to walk into Kotze's bakery and buy gourmet cupcakes at the moment, considering that his ingredients <laughs> uh, maybe not be the may not be top of the shelf ingredients, but they are starting to look like some very good ingredients. So I've been happy with what we're seeing from there, and I am really uh, excited of what the future could bring next year. I want to know, just kind of looking back on this year, what was, uh, I guess, and man, so many, what would you say is like the the shining light for you if you could just pick one, and what is the, oh my God, are you kidding? I think I may know what the, oh my God, are you kidding is, but hey, the way this season has gone, who knows? Well, if you're talking about for players, I mean, the shining light for me is two guys. It's Zach Geloff and Mason Miller. And since you asked me, I'll take the two easiest, obvious choices so that it makes it harder for you to answer the same question. But I think Zach Geloff is the shining light on the offensive side. I think Mason Miller, because I've been crowing about him since he was in the minor leagues and, you know, striking out 11 in one inning. No, just kidding. But, you know, like those are the guys that give me a lot of uh, shining light potential. As far as the, oh my God, have you got to be kidding me? I don't even know. Like, obviously you can look at the Yankees and getting no hit at home and having that streak. But I mean, there were so many moments in that 12 and 50 start that you just, you had to go numb to how bad it was. You know, like there was even moments where they played better as of late. They were getting no hit in a game. They loaded the bases with nobody out in a game they were still getting no hit, and they still didn't manage to get a run home. And that just happened recently where you're sitting there pulling your hair out. So you try to let those things go throughout the year and you try to like look at those positive performances from like Zach Geloff or that Mason Miller is healthy down the stretch and hopefully, you know, gives us a lot to be optimistic about. Because honestly, the no hitter against the Yankees. 
I kind of shrugged that off really quickly because of how bad everything was earlier in the year. Yeah, what about you? Uh, so my shining light, I'm going to, I'm going to go to, well, I'll, I'll do the negative first so we can transition on, on a good note. So the negative, I mean, come on, it's got to be Vegas and the, the noise that, that, that has created, yeah, yeah. um, you know, what that has done for fans, for some fans completely abandoning the, their fandom, some fans, uh, you know, we had a podcast where we talked about like people feeling like they were in mourning and, and I still remember, you know, those initial feelings and that initial shock. So uh, maybe that one was too obvious. So that's why uh, you went to the that one. But yeah, it's just like an on field moment. It's you were, the possum. It's the possum. It's yeah. the possum. Yeah. Um, so uh, no, but then my shining light, I'm going to have to say SD Ruiz here to come in as a, a rookie and get this franchise rookie stolen base record. And he's really close to doing the American League stolen yeah. base record. And on top of that, he's for rookies, yeah, for rookies, excuse me. And on top of that, he is still top five in the league for average with runners in scoring position. And so just uh, definitely a shining light. I know that he hasn't gotten all that center field playing time that he saw at the beginning, but I do feel hopeful that Butler is somebody that is also going to emerge and continue to develop. And if Ruiz is playing like left field or, or, you know, center field now and then, I'm really liking that A's outfield. What I really liked from Ruiz is that when they took his playing time away, he didn't just pout, he went to work. And we've seen him in the games where he's gotten an opportunity to start when he's been in either center field or left field that he has had an impact like you saw earlier in the year. His numbers are up. He's hitting the ball harder. And when he gets on base, it's essentially a triple. It doesn't matter how many outs there are. He's going to get to third if he's got enough time to do it. And I really like what the A's are doing. I mean, like we've been talking about it. They are losing better, but they're also winning more consistently. And each game, for the most part, they're in it. And even a game like we just saw, the, the series finale against the Astros, they won the first two games, they came out, they got no hit for the majority of that game, but they didn't go quietly into the night with their one hit and two walks. They worked hard, they managed to get a couple runs across, that leaves you feeling a lot better than if you got no hit or one hit and you just barely got by by the skin of your teeth. That's kind of an effort I like to see from a team that's learning how to win, which is a skill in its own right. And you know, another moment that I would say is the shining light from this season, which is an, if you're going to bring up Vegas as the kind of the overarching doom, the reverse boycott was one of the coolest moments going to a game in any season I can remember. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and this is a season where I got to participate in the flag ceremony on opening day. Right. And that's like long been forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the reverse boycott was incredible because we're A's fans. You see other A's fans. This is also the Bay Area where if you're walking down the street and you see somebody you don't know, you don't really like, hey, good morning, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that those vibes were very different right because there was just this whole communal support the parking lot before that reverse boycott was unlike anything i'd ever seen the vibes and the culture and everything inside was just incredible so good shout there just before we wrap things up today i did want to ask you if you had had a chance to see any of the news that got out this week about you know, A's owner John Fisher said that the, he's going to lose $40 million. It's just a little less than that, $39 million. Let's be accurate. And a great baseball writer for Forbes, Maury Brown, wrote 
an article about it. He got access to some of those financial documents to verify some of this and kind of do some reverse accounting to figure out how that all works. Now, the fact that the A's are losing money this season is not a shock. You're talking about an owner who announced that they were looking at moving out of not just the city, out of the state, while raising ticket prices, raising parking. Not surprising, a lot of those customers didn't want to show up to that. And you had people that were season ticket holders, not opting for their season tickets, instead opting, if I am going to go to a game, I'm going to try to get those $10 tickets. So I'm going to try to get those cheaper tickets. And so not as many people are going to the game this year. So it's not surprising that some of those numbers come out. But, you know, I heard Casey Pratt bring this up is if John Fisher's defense is that I'm losing $40 million, isn't that about your ownership and not about your customers because you're the one that owns a team that makes the decisions? Not a bush I want to beat around too much, but, you know, a a little bit, you know, I feel like we live in a capitalist society. Shouldn't your business fail? And so I don't want to go into that too much. So cut that, cut that, cut that. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, I did think there was an interesting piece. I think it was Evan Drellich of The Athletic wrote it. I think I sent the article to you that it was something that you've been talking about is that Major League Baseball owners seem to be picking up, hey, you know what? We should be following this A's model of trying to get more money out of public entities and governments. And that that is all of a sudden you're seeing a surge of owners, not just, you know, the ones that we knew about, like the A's and Rays. You're seeing every owner coming out of the woodwork with their hand out, being like, gimme, gimme, gimme. And without, you know, getting on my soapbox again, but that that's why I do see you can't you blame know, everything it, on a Lemus DS. He's tied to this. He's at the center of it. uh, But, you know, that's why I do see in baseball's five to 10 year plan, like a globalized plan, because I do think that there are some exploitative things happening. And I think, you know, Major League Baseball is a business that oftentimes turns a blind eye as long as it's making money. And so I, I do think that we are seeing more and more exploitative practices from the owners clearly being encouraged by Major League Baseball. And so I do think, well, what's the next step? More markets. Let's go global. So I'll leave it at that before. Uh, but a lead Diaz is behind it all. Not just kidding. I think the most transparent thing was uh, that a couple of weeks ago when we had Oakland Mayor come out and say that the city would be willing to discuss an extension of the lease. And now we've got a report from Bob Nightingale of USA Today saying that Major League Baseball would be willing to make the A's one of the expansion markets when they did if the A's were to leave. It just seems so transparent that Major League Baseball is trying to look at that situation and then make a promise that they have no intention of keeping to get Oakland to engage in extension talks with the A's at the Coliseum and then never follow through on delivering the expansion franchise that would get that deal done. No, I I agree with you. And I think one of the things that we've talked about is they do need their major league team playing in a major league quality field and not just for the way it looks on TV. uh, That is very important for marketing. But look at what just happened to Bay Area, former Bay Area uh, Cal Bear quarterback Aaron Rodgers just had a season ending injury on a field that a lot of Niners have gotten hurt on. 
that a lot of people are starting to say is not up to the quality that they need for the NFL. And I think the NFL Players Association is now saying, hey, we need grass fields here. So not only do you need that for the the commercial aspect, but you need that for the safety of your players because you can't have Aaron Judge coming out and then going out for the rest of the season or Shohei Otani or, or Mike Trout or any of these other big stars that you know the business does really rely on. It's funny that you bring that up because now that the Oakland Coliseum is a baseball-only facility, what you have people talking about within the NFL, I heard the Kelsey brothers talk about it a little while ago on their podcast, that the worst stadium to play in is New York. It's where the Jets and Giants have that shared turf field where Nick Bosa got hurt, where Solomon Thomas got hurt a couple of years ago when the 49ers had to play back-to-back games against the Jets and Giants in New York. But before that, the worst stadium that NFL teams talked about was having to come play on the infield dirt in Oakland and like get scratched up when they were sliding into where second base is or something like that. But now that that's gone, it's worked out for everybody because that used to tear up the baseball field and make that rock hard where you needed a guy with like Estuary Ruiz's speed to get what would have been a single on any other day. But because of the rock hard field, when the bleachers were not there, that ball was just skating all the way to center field. You know, it was always kind of fun, though, to watch a baseball game and see some football hash marks or a football game and see an infield. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But it was a unique experience that was a lot more fun, like, if you didn't have to participate in it. But also, I think to your point about the A's having to play at a major league facility, it loses its luster really quickly. You know, like, it's kind of fun for a little bit, but then you're like, okay, this is the professional level. This shouldn't be happening. Yeah, and I know they're doing the the Little League game where they play at, like, a Little League stadium and, and uh, you know, they do the Field of Dreams game and, and things like that, but at some point you can't just have every single game be like a novelty game and you can, but you're not really going to have like a home fan base. Right. But yeah, maybe the novelty game is perfect for Las Vegas. That's a good point. Well, this has been the Winter Hughes podcast. New episodes every week, barring any dental emergencies. We'll have a new episode out. You can also find us on YouTube and you can find us on social media at Win or Hughes. You can also find me on Twitter at Vegas Joe Hughes. And we'll talk again next week. Thanks for listening to the Winter Hughes podcast. Make sure to like and subscribe.